Good evening. This is Justin Ford for From the Frontline. Tonight we are dealing with Winning the Lost, Effective Evangelism in Practice. In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. Because tonight's show is a continuation of last week's discussion about evangelism, Dr. Hammond, please remind us of the two central messages that an evangelist needs to communicate to modern man. Well, God is light and God is love. We need to communicate the fact that God is the eternal judge before whom we must stand and give an account of all our lives. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. It is appointed unto man once to die and after the judgment. So in a sense, we've got to give the bad news first. The wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And so uh, this is so important that we give law to the proud heart and we give grace to the humble and broken heart. And uh, we cannot just rush to giving people the answer, just like a good teacher doesn't hand out the answer keys <laughs> before the exam. Um, uh, you, you want the people to be asking the right questions. Until people are asking, what must I do to be saved? We haven't done a good enough job of pre-evangelism, which is presenting the law. And it's so important that people understand the law because the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law is the schoolmaster to lead us to Christ that we can be justified by faith. Therefore, uh, you first of all present the problem that people understand God is a holy God. How can a holy God allow sinful people like you and I into his heaven? And people need to understand it. And unfortunately, most people, when you start with them, it's, I'm a good person. I'm a very good person. And most people don't have a sense of being lost or of even being sinful. And most people think that uh, God's very pleased with them and they, they're good people. And that's why it's necessary to analyze the problem, just like a good doctor must first diagnose the disease before people are interested in the cure. Nobody's going to be interested in the cure if they don't realize they've got a problem first. So law and grace, uh, the gospel includes both the light of God, his holiness, and his love and mercy. So we need to have that, that balance in the gospel. Before we continue... Um, looking at how to communicate that message and inform people that they need to be saved. Can you please tell me what you think about the use of the word evangelism in a non-Christian context? For example, consider the following quote from a 2015 Harvard Business Review article. To quote, derived from a Greek word that means roughly to proclaim good news, evangelism is explaining to the world how your product or service can improve people's lives. End quote. Is this valid or a form of blasphemy? <gasps> It seems pretty blasphemous to take the evangel, evangelion, uh, to, to suggest that you can take the word evangelism and divorce it from the evangel, from the gospel. So the, this is basically the commercialization of the gospel, or should we say, where uh, consumerism has become the gospel. And we, we can actually see, to some extent, this is valid uh, in the minds of the secular humanists, because they see themselves as God, and what they're doing is they're proclaiming good news about themselves or their product or their service or their company. Or, and it, It's shocking, but unfortunately for many people, this is true, but from a Christian point of view, this is totally unacceptable. Evangelism cannot be separate from the gospel uh, of Christ Jesus. And therefore, uh, unfortunately today, we can see many churches that are copying this form because what you see is the sinner-friendly, purpose-driven churches where it's a man-centered message, and it's it's how to market yourself to get more people to attend your church and to get bigger offerings and to get uh, bigger and better programs on, on the 
church's program and or, or TV station or whatever it is that they're promoting. And this commercialization of the gospel and this treating evangelism as a marketing campaign, unfortunately, is all too common. I've even heard people describing evangelism like marketing, like being a salesman. And that, of course, is so unbiblical because the biblical model is not of being a salesman. What we see more is freely, freely you have received, freely, freely give. Silver and gold have none, but such as I have given unto you. Rise up and walk. And you can just see throughout the book of Acts and the Gospels, uh, this wonderful discovery. We've discovered uh, so much and God has reached into history and, and God has saved us and, and God has come into our midst, uh, Emmanuel, God with us. And Christ has died for our sins and he's risen from the dead. He's ascended in heaven. He's come again to judge the living and dead. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Repent and believe the good news. Be baptized. So you can see the emphasis in the Bible is very God-centered. And uh, it's shocking that we've now got something where come to Jesus or come to the front or make this decision or be converted or join our church or go through this program and all your problems will be over or you are going to experience this and the other. And it is like a marketing scam. So, no, that's not, a, that's not evangelism in a true biblical sense, not with a capital E, that's for sure. Yeah, now that you've made the important distinction between marketing and the salesman versus the evangelist, um, here's another distinction that I think needs to be clarified is what is the difference between a missionary and an evangelist? Well, an evangelist shares the gospel amongst his own people, culture, language, and his own geographic area. A missionary crosses boundaries. A missionary is sent. Uh, so uh, to use the missiology term, we use E0, E1, E2, and E3. Now, this all comes from the book of Acts. The, the key verse that summarizes the book of Acts is Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the utmost parts of the earth. Now, that's basically a summary of the whole book of Acts, because the book of Acts begins in Jerusalem, where Christ was crucified and where he rose from the dead. And so on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter stands up and he proclaims this gospel to the people who had murdered the Messiah, who had who had rejected him. So he starts where he is, and he speaks in their language. He speaks to his people. You start right there. They're in the temple in the local areas. They're proclaiming to, to their own neighbors. So there's no boundary being crossed. They, they're speaking in their own language. They're speaking to their own neighbors. They're speaking in their own culture. And there's no geographic distance. That's Jerusalem. That's what we call E0. That's evangelism. E1 is when you go to Judea. Now you are crossing a boundary. You're still speaking to your own people, your own language, but you're going to a different geographical locality. E2 is like Samaria. Now you're speaking to different people of a different uh, language, culture, uh, religion, and then you get to us from parts of that's E3, crossing every boundary imaginable, like you know, going to Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, <laughs> different religion, different culture, and so on. So from a missiology point of view, taking Book of Acts, Acts 1 verse 8 as the foundation, we distinguish between evangelism, which every Christian can do in their own area, in their own language, and missions where you might have to use. Now, these days you could be involved in E1, 2, and 3 right here in Cape Town, for example, because we have got Saudi Arabians, Pakistanis. We've got people of different languages, cultures, and religions within our hearing. We can go to uh, Muslim areas in Cape Town uh, just a few minutes away, and you can be involved in serious cross-cultural evangelism with people of different languages, cultures, religions, and so on. But uh, traditionally, E3 would be reserved for now you're going to a massive different 
geographic area as well. So, uh, yes, that's the difference. Generally speaking, evangelism is what you can do without crossing boundaries. Missions is where you have to cross some boundary to, to get to the people, even if it's just linguistic, cultural, and religious boundary. But the message is the same, whether you're called to go across the streets or across the world. Make disciples of all nations. Can you give a, a quick breakdown of the traditional methods from Bible times until the beginning of the 20th century that we used to evangelize? Right. Well, for example, Peter and Paul, open-air proclamation of the gospel and itinerant evangelism, missionary journeys, uh, literature. In fact, the existence of the New Testament shows about that because the epistles were written to, well, the churches that they'd uh, already evangelized and now they are doing follow-up. And so you get the Bible teaching and epistles. The Gospels were written for evangelistic purposes. So the whole New Testament really is a missionary document um, and shows that they put a high prize on literature and, and the reading of the Word of God and then later the preaching of it. So open-air proclamation, Bible translation, Bible studies, home meetings. There's a lot of home meetings in the book of Acts. And so you can see meeting together in homes, informal, relaxed environments for studying the Bible, praying, discussing, counseling people. And uh, through the years, you can see how um, evangelism became very important in uh, open-air preaching. George Whitfield, John Wesley, getting into open airs, preaching to the people where they were. Uh, you can see pulpit ministry such as Jonathan Edwards' uh, the expounding of the Word of God, such as done by Ulrich Zwingli, uh, line by line, verse by verse through the Bible in Grossmünster and Zurich, and uh, Sunday schools in the 1700s to reach especially the urbanized, um, illiterate youth. They set up Sunday schools because, remember, children were working in the factories. There was no protection against children working in factories. They had to. And uh, the only day of the week that they could actually reach them was on Sundays. And because they didn't go to school, they first need to be taught how to read and write. And so Sunday schools were expressly evangelistic initially. They weren't babysitting for church people's children, which they've deteriorated to in many places today. It was an evangelistic outreach. And I found it interesting when I went to Birmingham some time ago for in England for a missions conference, I saw them doing Sunday school the way Sunday school was originally intended, that everyone went to church on Sunday morning. And almost everyone at church on a Sunday afternoon ran Sunday schools for people from Pakistan and Jamaica and Saudi Arabia and wherever else they came from neighborhood who generally didn't even speak English. <laughs> and they, they were uh, having different types of uh, Sunday school classes to reach and teach uh, the, the uh, children in the neighborhood in evangelistic way. So there was at least one Baptist church I found in Birmingham, and I know there were others, uh, who are using Sunday school in the original intention of as a mission from church people to non-church people in their community. But I'm afraid most people think Sunday school was designed to uh, be a babysitting service on Sundays for their children, which so that you didn't have uh, your um, agitated, uh, uh, fidgeting children in the main service with you. But biblically, for most of church history, almost all of church history, all ages attend the Sunday service. And Sunday school would have been done at another time. Uh, the idea that you'd have Sunday school at the same time as the Sunday morning service is a latter part of the 20th century aberration. For most of church history, all ages went to church. And you can just think, for example, how today people speak about the children of today or the church of tomorrow, which is nonsense because is an age limit to church? Uh, no, um, the church has always consisted of all ages. There's, there's no such thing that... The youth today aren't part of the church yet, but only when they leave school do they become part of the church. 
that, that's not a biblical concept. That's uh, something very recent, uh, 20th century aberration. So you can see how the uh, methods of traditional evangelism has gone from open proclamation literature, itinerant evangelism missions, a lot of home meetings, pulpit preaching, Bible studies, Bible translations, Sunday schools, and then rallies. You think of Deal Moody and Torrey in the uh, uh, 1800s and 19th century, particularly having these big rallies, filling out um, uh, massive amounts of um, uh, halls and massive stadiums in order to reach huge amounts of people. So um, all of those have been used, but I would say probably the most traditional method through all of history has been one-on-one -on -one personal evangelism. And I suppose the next step in the uh, development of evangelism would have been the use of the printed word. The printing press launched the Protestant Reformation. There's no doubt that Professor Martin Luther used the printing press so effectively. When I went to the Reformation Museum in Geneva, I was uh, impressed to see the first item in the Geneva Museum was the printing press, and it had a sign that the printing press, the reformer's friend, the tyrant's foe. And that's a fact. Um, as uh, was well said, um, that uh, the Pope could stop the mouth of Jerome Savonarola, and he could stop the mouth of Huss, but he could not stop the printing press, which Martin Luther utilized. And, uh, and yes, so the printing press became super powerful, very effective. And uh, while literature's always been part of, of ministry, you just take John Wycliffe's Bible translation work, and then he trained the Lollards, the field workers of the Reformation, to go out and proclaim the gospel and read the scriptures in English in the marketplaces, sing the gospel as well. And, uh, of course, all the literature they had was handwritten, so they couldn't exactly do mass literature distribution. But uh, that started with the printing press. Are words, be they spoken or written, the most effective way to evangelize, or can other media be used to spread the good news? Well, words are certainly powerful because the Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And uh, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So obviously any good evangelism has got to be word-based. But for most of history, most people have been illiterate. And so traditionally through the age, especially the Middle Ages, much of the gospel was communicated through stained glass windows with uh, biblical stories and depictions and artwork and beautiful artwork and statues and monuments. And and so uh, you can see in the average cathedral, you go through and you can actually see in many cases the stations of the cross, key teachings from creation all the way through the great miracles and then the ministry of Jesus, the healings and the preaching of the gospel and the feeding of the 5,000 and all the way through to the great uh, victory over death, hell and the grave and rising from dead. So uh, much of uh, of the gospel was communicated through stained glass windows. Uh, and in many ways, you know, it's the light shining through these windows and this beautiful artwork. For many people, artwork was critical. And that's why some of the early Bibles had a lot of artwork in it too. Uh, and that artwork, of course, had to be done by woodcuts, where an artist had to have a flat piece of wood which would be carved with the etching so that they would leave blank spaces on certain pages where this would be. In, and then after paper's been printed with all the text, now they've got, it's like an ink pad. You insert in the ink and then you place it on that point and you've got to be very careful not to smudge and it's straight and some places aren't. And uh, human error. Uh, but you, that's how a lot of Martin Luther's writings and even the Bibles he translated had a lot of depictions 
through woodcuts. Uh, that was the only illustration that was available for centuries, actually, um, as technology. So we're talking about the 1500s on. They used a lot of woodcuts. So artwork, very, very, very key uh, to depict a lot of things. And even today, we are using um, audiovisual materials in order to be able to communicate the gospel to people. Uh, what about music? Well, from the very beginning, Christianity has been a singing religion. And in fact, it's been pointed out that out of all religions in the world, Christianity is the only really singing religion. You don't get the Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims actually singing uh, at all. There might be some chanting here and there, but music is inseparable from Christianity. And Christianity is a uniquely singing religion. And congregational singing has been a major part of Christianity from the earliest. Although there was a time in the Middle Ages where sadly the congregation was not expected to sing and they came and they stood and they just listened to the choir singing uh, in, in Latin. <laughs> um, and so congregational singing in our own language was lost for a time, but from the beginning that was the normal practice of the church, uh, right back to the Book of Acts and for first many centuries. And of course since the Reformation there's been a great rebirth of congregational singing. And then you can think of tremendous Christian composers like Bach and Handel and uh, Handel's Messiah and uh, um, uh, Bach's uh, incredible presentations like of, of uh, uh, the Gospel of Matthew and so on and creation and Steiner's crucifixion and so many uh, phenomenal um, musical presentations. So music and the arts have been greatly used to present the Gospel and to illustrate the Gospel and to, to celebrate the Gospel. We now live in a world of very high technology and a showcase for the powerful high-tech tools that are at the disposal of the modern evangelist is SAT-7. Can you tell us about this endeavor, Dr. Hammond? Oh, yes. In fact, SAT-7, Satellite 7, this is one of the most phenomenal pioneer missionary work going on in the world today. Uh, it's, it's evangelizing in the Middle East with the primary goal of reaching Muslims for Christ. Now, I remember back in 1995, I was at a missions event uh, in PE, and I was on board the Logos ship. This is the Operation Mobilization mission ship uh, just off the coast of uh, Port Elizabeth. We we're in the harbor there. And uh, we were having a missions mobilizer meeting, super ultra secret gathering of missions mobilizers discussing how to reach the Middle East for Christ. And there was very high-powered people there. We were talking about George Verver and, and other uh, serious missions mobilizers. And amongst the things suggested was Sat7, Satellite 7, reaching Muslims with satellite TV. And I must have been in a fairly negative mood about it because I made some uh, comments saying, well, how many people in the Middle East have access to a satellite dish, satellite TV? And uh, this one man looking at it, um, um, I think it was Terence Ascot, he said, about 50 million. 50 million. So I said, are you telling me that Bedouins are traveling around with satellite dishes on their camels? And he said, actually, yes, they are. Like, what? Well, <laughs> Sat7 has grown so phenomenally. Uh, forget about 50 million people in the Middle East having access to satellite TV. Today, 400 million people in the Middle East have access to satellite dishes, uh, satellite dish TV. And so the potential viewers in the Middle East is, is 400 million. Satellite 7 is now operating in 25 countries in the Middle East. Four channels, uh, that's an Arabic channel, which has been going since 1996. There's a, um, a Farsi uh, or Persian channel in 2008. Uh, a kids' uh, 
um, Sat7 since 2007, Turkish since 2010, well, a full-time channel. So they've got four channels and three languages uh, going 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. Sat7, absolutely phenomenal, reaching uh, their audience, their actual audience is 25 million people are tuning in Sat7. Some of the statistics are so stunning. One in three children in Iraq are watching Sat7 Kids. One in four children in Saudi Arabia are watching uh, Kids Sat7. So uh, Satellite 7 uh, or Sat7, which is based in um, Cyprus, which is a Christian-dominated Greek island in the Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean. So that's a great base, and they're broadcasting throughout the whole of North Africa and the Middle East. Absolutely staggeringly effective. And uh, they were getting, now I'm going back years, uh, they were getting tens of thousands of correspondents a month to deal with. And this is people asking for Bible studies, counseling, Bible, coming to the Lord. And of course, in most of these countries, Evangelism is illegal, and the Bible is illegal. And through digital evangelism, uh, through the email, through the internet, doing phenomenal things. Now, I mean, some of the things that you've seen with Sat7 operating, and we've had one of our missionaries preaching at a church in Egypt, for example, uh, that their services on Sundays recorded to become a Sat7 program. I don't know if it's live or recorded, but um, they they part of their regular uh, programs and. Uh, you can imagine the amount of people who attend a Christian service in the Middle East is few, but the amount of people who can watch it on satellite is many. Well, uh, they've done some great flash mobs. So, for example, one of the Sat7 things, which is very exhilarating to watch, um, you can, uh, if you look for Easter flash mob Beirut, uh, Lebanon, um, and it's uh, this Easter flash mob, uh, it's, a, it's a Lebanese church. They went into the local shopping mall. And one of them stands up and starts singing, Hallelujah, Jesus has risen from the dead. And someone else stands up, He has risen, risen, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And then a few more start. And next thing there's music and people sing and there's a whole choir. And they're all just around the shopping mall and all start to in unison. That's what they call this flash mob. And um, and this is all getting filmed from different directions. And uh, and it put together this brilliant, it's, it's, and you can see the local shoppers and people wearing Muslim headdresses on, joyful, clapping, uh, joining in, singing in some cases. And uh, and this gets broadcast. They edit it into a lovely program. Now, it was an evangelistic program, which was done in a shopping mall, but then it's, it's filmed and then it's broadcast all over. And that's such an exciting, exhilarating example to people saying, yes, you know, I must organize something like that with our local choir downtown. And, and so uh, Sat7's been creative. Their children's programs are superior. And uh, I mean, the amount of Muslim homes where the children are watching Sat7 without the parents seeming to mind, or maybe they don't know. I mean, I don't know. But, uh, you know, think of one third of the children in Iraq are watching Sat7 to kids. So um, Satellite 7 is just one example of how you can creatively evangelize even in areas where the gospel is illegal. That is certainly good news about spreading the good news and very inspiring. Dr. Hammond. Your first frontline mission trip, which was by motorcycle to Mozambique, utilized both traditional methods and more modern methods of evangelism. 
Can you tell us about the various methods you used? And also, what did you actually say when you preached to the Mozambicans, a foreign people who speak a foreign language in a country then governed by atheist Marxists? Yes, I mean, here I was uh, going into Mozambique, which used to be a Portuguese colony where Portuguese and Shangon were the main languages, and I didn't speak either. And uh, so talk about crossing boundaries. And I, well, I was using a very traditional um, method uh, in terms of open air preaching and proclaiming the gospel. I was taking Bibles and New Testament, so I was using print technology and uh, I was using preaching, but I also had the Jesus form. Of course, I was using a motorbike as well, so that's pretty modern uh, as well, off-road motorbike. And I rode into Mozambique, and uh, remember, we were at war with Mozambique. Mozambique was at war with us, with us back in 1980s, and uh, it was a Marxist country, communist government, no Bibles allowed, no missionaries allowed, uh, very serious persecution. Nobody had 18 allowed in churches. 8,000 churches had been confiscated or closed under Philemon in the previous year. So it was a very serious situation. So I was using a mixture of both traditional methods and um, and modern methods in the sense of film evangelism. The Jesus film had just come out the previous year. And so here it was, Easter 1982, and um, I'm showing them by 16 millimeter. Uh, the Jesus film, which is all the Gospel of Luke, every word from the Gospel of Luke. Well, there's only one word they put in the mouth of Jesus that's not in the Bible because I've watched, I've watched it over a hundred times in uh, many languages. And that's uh, at one of the early places he walks into town, he shake, rubs some kid's hair and says hello, which is not in the Bible. Uh, there's no hello there. But aside from that, every word comes from, from the Bible. So, uh, this was a great way that I didn't know the local language, Portuguese or Shankar. But I could take in a projector uh, and the Jesus form and show them the Jesus form in Portuguese. And then I could take in Bibles and books in, and gospel booklets in Shangon and Portuguese. So um, I was making use of the best technology available to me at that time. And the message I preached through interpreters, when I had a good interpreter, was Mount Carmel, Elijah facing the prophets of Baal and the power of God and the emptiness of those who, who oppose the, uh, the God of the Bible. And uh, uh, interestingly, that's in 1982, making that, and I, I had phenomenal responses. I remember this one uh, presentation after showing the, the Jesus film, proclaiming the gospel uh, through interpreter, and when I gave an altar call, people came out of the dark wearing camouflage uniforms, holding AK-47s and started walking towards me. I thought, that's the end of my ministry. And uh, they knelt down, they put their rifles in dirt, and they pressed their heads to the ground like their foreheads to the ground and, and, and start to pray. And they were surrendering their life to Christ. Uh, Philema soldiers. I got to baptize soldiers who were communists who had been our enemy uh, before. And uh, so that was extraordinary. But uh, what that was the first message I preached on many occasions is the power of God where, where Elijah, the true prophet of God, confront the false prophets of Asher and Baal. Well, a few years later, Samora Michel tried his own stunt of this. He stood up in Red Star Stadium in Maputo and said, there is no God, I can prove it to you. And he cursed the name of Jesus and he blasphemed God and he challenged God to strike him dead to prove his existence. And after counting off the seconds, he said, time's up, God. God does not exist. I exist. And the people applaud the hat to him in his the dictator to one body state. But a month later, about 40 days later, Samora Michel's plane, his Tupolev Soviet supplied plane, smashed into pieces in the eastern Transvaal, just on the border of, of Mozambique in the Lubombo Mountains. And uh, uh, 
Uh, not only Samora Michelle, but most of his Politburo's cabinet were destroyed in this crash. And the plans of the Marxists for overthrowing Malawi, a Christian country, were in the wreckage. It was found, it was translated. We published it. Um, United Christian Action published it all over the world in different languages, and uh, it exposed and countered and and completely dismantled the plans of the Marxists to overthrow. But this is another case of a, like a Elijah versus uh, the false prophets of Baal, except reversed, where it's, it was the Marxists standing up trying to have a contest with God, and uh, well, it's quite clear who won. Uh, but yes, that was those were my methods and the message and World Missionary Press Gospel booklets, New Testaments. And the Jesus film uh, were the the tools being used on being distributed around on a motorbike, but the message straight from the Bible. Do you still use the Jesus film? We do because it's it's an excellent way of giving the charisma, the core of the gospel, meaning the life teachings, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, ending with the Great Commission in the local language, and because. The people who've done the translations are normally the ones that did the Bible translations. You've got a very high level of uh, scriptural integrity, and they are keeping the text to uh, what is in the scripture. It's all from the Gospel of Luke. And therefore, for a person who's not fluent in the local language, and let's face it, it's rare to find a translator who's so well-trained that he won't distort some of the doctrines just through ignorance, not deliberately, uh, because... Bible translators have to wrestle with the exact wording and terminology and what's best in that language. And so instead of just speaking from your feet and sometimes maybe not giving the theological accuracy, to have two hours of straight scripture in their language and also dramatically depicted without special effects, just, you know, very, very straightforward, very true to the scriptures. That's very helpful. And then, of course, we'd preach. Now, uh, when we're using 16 more projectors, you'd have six, you'd have five preaching opportunities before each reel and at the end. Uh, so while one's rewinding the reel, the next one's standing up and um, and and preaching through interpreter. And uh, I remember in the early days, for example, uh, we had lots of Gospels of Luke in Shangan or Shona, whatever language we were dealing with. And so we would say, they've seen the film. Now, read the book and meet the star. And, uh, you know, I'm going to introduce you to Christ. And, and the book is, of course, the Gospel of Luke, uh, which... So that, that was the way we would we would do follow-up and, and preaching at the time. And uh, yes, we still use the cheese film because many of the people who come to join our mission, they don't know how to preach. And of course, even the ones who do, um, they don't know the language is all the place we're going. We've shown the cheese film in the Congo and Sudan and uh, over in Namibia and Angola and Mozambique and Zimbabwe and all over. And so... Uh, it's it's a great way of starting. Sometimes I've gone to a town I've known nobody, not a single contact. So I get to a town, I may not know anyone, I may have no meetings, crank up the generator, show the Jesus form, project against the wall or so on. And afterwards, people come, I'm a local pastor, I'm a local Christian, I've got a Bible study, can you speak at my school? And so you start off with film evangelism and you've got a full itinerary the next week. So uh, it's, it's a great first point of contact. And... Um, We'll get the people together and take, for example, what we've done frequently in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe doesn't have power failures. Zimbabwe occasionally gets electricity. So most of the week there's no electricity. So, for example, we've been many places. We're the only show in town. So when we put on a Jesus film, everyone comes from around far and wide because there's nothing else on. Nothing else on. And we we have it. And and afterwards, I mean, you can see the people come from local beer halls and so on. They, they, they attract it to the film. And so 
it gives us a great point of contact. So even to this day, the Jesus form is an effective tool, especially with our new field workers. But even if you're experienced, uh, I've taken Jesus form all over the New Mountains, shown every night in a different place. And we had Bible college students following us from village to village all across New Mountains, watching the film again and again. You could see they were actually doing scripture memorization. They're trying to remember all the different verses. And and, uh, and they were practicing during day. And they were trying to see that they could memorize the whole Gospel of Luke. And the film was helping them with it. So uh, they're not only stretching their mind, they were stretching their muscles because we walked many kilometers every day. Has the advent of the internet, social media, and smartphones assisted or impeded evangelism, particularly outdoor, open-air evangelism? I would say it's actually assisted um, because now we have digital evangelism, digital libraries, SD cards. Even if a person does not have electricity, even if they have no cell phone connectivity uh, or range in their area, like in place of New Mountains, we bring them a little SD card that's got the whole Bible in Arabic, the whole uh Bible audio in Arabic, the Jesus film in Arabic, um, Calvin's Institute, a whole lot of other books and, and Bible study aids in Arabic. And it all fits in a little SD card, a four gigabyte SD card. And we're sometimes distributing 16 up to 32 gigabyte SD cards. We're putting vast libraries. You, you would be stunned to know how many hundreds of hours of audio and how many hundreds of thousands of pages you can put on an SD card and, and even um, hours of films. So uh, we're using this in especially the Muslim Middle East, Egypt and places like that, vast amounts of materials. So uh, while obviously there's, just like the printing press can be used to print Marxist Manifesto or the Bible, uh, the printing press is neutral. It can be used for good or evil. So is a lot of this technology. So while I know there's a lot of bad on the internet, it certainly can be used for evangelism and is being used for evangelism, and it's particularly useful for the Muslim Middle East and communist China. We are reaching people in places where the Bible is illegal using this technology. Mm, yeah, we saw that with Sat7. I mean, TV has been such a negative influence on people and as a force against Christianity, but then you see people using Sat7 as a positive, powerful force. Um, what about email? It's such a mundane thing these days. Is that a useful medium for evangelism? Extremely, extremely useful, especially as South African Postal Service has basically failed to become useful anymore. In fact, they're so unreliable that you've got the odds against your letter being delivered. So uh, while we used the Postal Service a lot in the early days of this mission, the Postal Service unfortunately has become uh, more and more unreliable. And therefore, email is one of the one methods that we can be sure it's probably going to reach the people. So it's very useful. Uh, we send out regular emails with Bible studies, with missions messages, with links to audios, with links to videos, with links to slideshare PowerPoints, to our audio podcast. And uh, there's so many things you can send uh, by email. And so it's a communications medium. And just as the early Christian church used the Roman postal service and the Roman roads to take the epistles, the gospels, all over the, the known world at that time. So we're able to use emails for evangelism, for discipleship, for follow-up, and of course also for organizing uh, evangelistic meetings, advertising uh, seminars and courses and conferences and home education and links to our webs like Livingston Fellowship, which we've got a lot of our Bible studies and sermons on, the whole Bible survey, the William Carey Bible Institute, which has huge amounts of free resources where we've had all kinds of pastors, missionaries, and theologians donating their resources for us to make freely available through William Carey Bible Institute. So the uh, williamcareybi.com uh, website is very 
um, uh, used, especially by email. Uh, yes, I think email has become not just extremely useful, but in many cases, it's the only way to communicate, considering that the secular postal service basically collapsed. While we're on the topic of evangelism and technology, what do you think about televangelists and televangelism? Have they benefited Christianity or not? On the balance, I'd say no. There have been some good evangelists on TV. I just think of Dr. James Kendi and his evangelism explosion. Uh, he's much missed. But I'm afraid the vast amount of what goes by the name of televangelists and televangelism is negative. We have too much prosperity gospel, name it, claim it, frame it, speak into existence. And in many ways, I've found from a ministry on the streets doing one-on-one -on -one personal evangelism on the streets, a lot of the televangelists have inoculated people against Christianity. The amount of times you try to share the gospel with somebody and they say, I'm not interested. What do you mean not interested? I tried it. Tried what? Christianity. What was wrong? Didn't work. What do you mean didn't work? I didn't get my healing or I didn't keep my healing or I didn't get that job or I didn't get that promotion or I didn't win the lottery. No, no jokes. I didn't win the lottery. I said, that's not the gospel. Where did you get this from? And almost always from the TV, they heard from Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland or Kenneth Hagen or one of these different characters out there, uh, um, Bashiri and so on. They heard all these different promises. And T.G. Jake said, and, and honestly and truly, uh, I feel that they've inoculated people against real Christianity. Many people are, are absolutely repulsed, and I don't blame them because they say, if that's Christianity, I'm not interested. And I could say, well, if that is Christianity, I wouldn't be interested either. But that isn't Christianity. What you've seen is fake fruit. It's plastic fruit. It's not the real thing. Uh, it's shallow. It's superficial. And I'm afraid there's been a lot of disgracing of um, the Christian mess and confusing people. Uh, and of course, giving people the wrong idea. So you can try and share with someone the gospel and they start off, I'm a good person. Can I ask a few questions, see if that's true. And you ask, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever, yes, I've told lies. Have you stolen anything? Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, have you taken God's name in vain? Well, I probably have by now already. And uh, yes, frequently. Have you ever looked with lust all the time? Um, and uh, uh, have you ever hated someone? Yes. Well, Jesus said that's like um, committing murder in your heart. And tell me again why you're such a good person. No, well, um, I mean, God's merciful and gracious. So if you were to lie today, would you end up in heaven or hell? Heaven. Why? You've already admitted you're lying blaspheming, adulterous, murderous, thief. Um, uh, why would God let you into his heaven? Because God must forgive us. What do you mean God must forgive you? And they, they've got no fear of God, no understanding of the law of God, the justice of God. And the average person has got such a perverted view. They think God exists just to give me things. Let me win the lottery. And uh, uh, I don't have any fear of him and I've got no need to obey him and uh, they don't have this sense of a holy God who's the eternal judge who we're going to have to kneel before and, and give an account of our lives and so um, I'm afraid a lot of the televangelists have complicated our, our work it was easier probably dealing with raw pagans witchcraft followers uh, and atheists and dealing with people who think yeah I prayed the prayer yeah I've, I've, I've tried Christianity it just didn't work and all they've tried is this fake gospel. Dr. Hammond, it seems from what you've just said that when evangelizing, one is not only trying to reach non-believers, but also people who are non-committal Christians or have, who are following false shepherds or false prophets that you just discussed. 
That's true. I mean, basically what we're trying to do is uh, back to the Bible for Reformation Revival. It's absolutely vital. Um, uh, most of the people in churches today have a shallow understanding of the gospel, a shallow understanding, inadequate understanding of God. And I know that that's true because when we ask people to describe in our uh, surveys and marketplaces and shopping malls, describe God, most people have no real understanding of immortal, invisible, God only wise, uh, everywhere present, all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, holy, holy. Uh, that It's a rarity to find people describing God's um, immutability and his um, uh, perfection and holiness and so on and his wrath against sin. I mean, you won't hear that much except from the rare uh, individual. So sadly, plainly, the average churchgoer in the world today, not even just talking about the pagans, the average churchgoer does not understand who God is, does not understand why Jesus came, and does not understand the biblical gospel. Because even when you ask them to, to explain the gospel, the average person is not really able to do so. And I wish I was just talking about people on the streets and the pews, but in some cases we're talking about pastors and Bible college lecturers who fail the Bible exam, dead serious. Christians are not the only people evangelizing. They are competing worldviews, and worst of all, the prince of the world, Satan, is very busy mesmerizing and leading people astray. To quote George Sweezy, there has been more mass evangelism in our time than ever before in human history, though it has been used by the church's enemies, not by the church. Is there anything we can learn from these competitors, their tactics and methods, and how can we counter them? Yes, indeed. And, I mean, we've just seen in recent days the United Nations, World Economic Forum, New World Order, Great Reset, the great COVID cult, the Wuhan Health Organization, and salvation by vaccination, masquerade madness, lockdown lunacy. Uh, I mean, that's just one example of how quickly the world could be evangelized by this COVID cult. And even if churches closing down, more churches were closed in 2020 under this COVID cult, lockdown lunacy, than even Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin combined managed to close in their whole lifetimes. So this is this is serious. And and of course, today we're seeing the LGBTQ agenda very aggressively promoted, the gay GB, perversion, CRT, critical race theory, BLM, that's the burn, loot, murder, bar, Lucifer, Moloch crowd, uh, the gender confusion, the trans agenda. So yes, we're seeing secularism, humanism, consumerism, materialism, existentialism are using the media to evangelize us, to use their kind of terms to to propagandize us, to indoctrinate us. Um, and so we need to recognize that we are in a world war of worldviews. We are involved in a colossal spiritual world war, a battle for hearts and minds, a battle for souls, a battle for people's eternities. And so uh, we cannot uh, be um, stuck in the 18th century tactics of evangelism only uh, in this world because the world is evangelizing our churches and indoctrinating and, and deceiving people, even the pews, even the pulpits. You can see how many churches bought into this COVID cult, lockdown, lunacy, salvation by vaccination message. And so, yes, it means we've got to be on the internet. We've got to make use of the platforms, the electronic methods, the World Wide Web. Uh, we we've, we've must always use the printing press, but we've got to uh, be sure that we don't allow the secular humanists to push their message uh, to the exclusion of the gospel. There's never been a time where it's more urgent for us to use every means to let the earth hear his voice. Dr. Hammond, what resources does Frontline Fellowship offer to equip and empower evangelists? Right, well, we 
offer the Great Commission course, which was an intensive three-week Great uh, uh, Commission training course, a missions training program, which includes the whole way of the master evangelistic training program, um, a basic training program in it, uh, practical on the streets, climbing mountains and so on. And that's the next uh, GCC is being planned for January. Uh, but in addition to that, you will find our Great Commission handbook, Great Commission manual available, our Great Essential Missions books, all of that's available now. Frontline Mission SA.org website. You can contact ChristianLibertyBooks.co.za and get some of our resources from practical discipleship uh, through to biblical worldview uh, summit manuals and and other good resources. I strongly recommend Living Waters material. Living Waters Africa uh, stocks the various tracks of Ray Comfort and the whole way of the Master Ministries from from the United States. So there's some very good tracks. We've also provided a lot of materials that we've designed ourselves here. And you can get hold of these tracks through going on the livingstonfellowship.co.za website, www.livingstonfellowship.co.za. We've got over 70 of our tracks evangelistically available in many different languages. We've also got uh, things in Dutch and German and French and Russian and Chinese. And So uh, uh, go on to the livingstonfellowship.co.za website and see what you can find. There's audios, videos, PowerPoints, different technology that you can use. Uh, that you can share with others uh, digitally and, of course, on social media as well. The following verse from Romans chapter 10 uh, resonates with the topic of evangelism. So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Thank you very much for joining us for From the Frontline. God bless and good night. <laughs>